Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. When Ian Gardner was 10 years old, he was the fastest kid in his class to solve the Rubik's Cube. He was also quick enough to sense a business opportunity, so he sold the solutions to his classmates. Despite the modest circumstances of his childhood in Glasgow, he went on to secure a place at St Peter's College, Oxford, and row not once, but twice in the prestigious Oxford-Cambridge boat race, the culmination of six hours of training, six days a week for seven months, on top of the demanding Oxford academic expectations. So what becomes of a man who has these sort of innate smarts and stamina? Surprisingly, he's found himself halfway around the world and together with his wife, Andrea Gardner, one half of possibly the most dynamic couple in the Australian startup ecosystem with their firm, Gillix Ventures. Ian's also the co-founder of the wonderfully expansive network of technology and investment enthusiasts, Innovation Bay, and for good measure, the host of probably my favourite Australian startup podcast, Open the Pod Bay Doors. Along the way, Ian became a member of YPO, had a stint as the head of startups at AWS in Australia and New Zealand, won the Percy Award for IT Entrepreneur of the Year, and became a passionate startup mentor, cyclist, gamer, skier, husband, geek, and father, but not necessarily in that order. Ian, it's fantastic to see you, but I have to admit I'm a little bit intimidated because arguably you run the most loved and most informative podcast on startups in Australia. <laughs> well, it's good to start with a bit of flattery. Uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's definitely a labour of love uh, and I do love doing it, but thank you. And just in terms of your motivation for running the podcast? I look, I started it when I was still at AWS, so I had a job running the startup team for AWS for four years. Well, and really the job was around helping to build and develop the ecosystem uh, or the community. And I thought it was a good way to get the stories of the people that mattered out into that community. So it was kind of done when I was there under the Innovation Bay banner. But, and it's just sort of grown since then. I mean, for the first, uh, I think I started it in May, must be 2017 now. And for the first half year, I did one a week religiously. And that was brutal. By the end of that, you're just like, oh my God, I've got to do another bloody podcast. And then you're struggling to find the guest and to book them in and book the room and then do the prep. And it just became a bit much. So now it's a little looser. We still try and keep a bit of a cadence, but it's the motivation was, I guess, a little selfish and a little altruistic. You know, I love hanging out with people and hearing their stories. And I think it was good for the ecosystem. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've got to admit, I learned tons from listening to your interviews. And so my sense is, you're maybe a bit like me that you actually scratch your own itch by interviewing people that you want to talk to and, and learn stuff from. I think what you find as you get into it, like the, the challenge with podcasting is, I mean, you and I are just having a chat here and it just feels like any other, but there's no real feedback. 
you don't actually get to engage with your audience. And the only time you do is when they email you and say, oh, I love your podcast, or you meet them and they're like, oh, I really like that interview. And then it's like, oh, well, that makes it worthwhile. But it's kind of like shouting into a void a little bit. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you guys ran some fantastic, in the first part of COVID, some fantastic interactive forums that were synchronous so that there was an audience and I thought they were terrific too. Thank you. Yeah, but again, we were making it up as we went. I mean, we just thought that was a good idea and, you know, we carried on with that for probably 20, 22 weeks. These things just, they they have a life and that ran its course and people started getting back to normal and uh, that particular element wasn't needed anymore. So that's sort of a great demonstration of what I think is part of your DNA is that sort of entrepreneurialism and that ability to see opportunity and respond to opportunity. Where did that come from? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone's got their early days entrepreneurial story. You know, what's the most entrepreneurial thing I've done? I mean, it goes back to when I was at school. I ran a, a book, I, you know, gambling for the Christmas number one, which was a big thing back in the UK in the, uh, in the 80s when I was doing it. Yeah, and I didn't know anything about bookmaking and or what it actually meant. And it was when uh, some of the audience might be old enough to remember this, but Band Aid, do they know it's Christmas? It was the second year that was released, and that looked like a shoe in for the Christmas number one. And I would have been wiped out. I was up for losing thirty pounds, which is a ten-year-old. You know, I was envisaging getting beaten up by the you know year six boys or the year twelve boys, as it would have been then. And then fortunately, um, Shake and Stevens came in with this green door and saved my bacon because nobody bet on this green door and I made, made a bit of money. So I loved doing that and I was smart enough to learn things, but the trend of the Rubik's Cube came out and everyone had a Rubik's Cube. I actually spent some money and bought the book on how to solve it. And then I would charge people money to solve the Rubik's Cube uh, at school. And it's just you know stupid stuff like that. And I guess the concept of trying to build something where there was a gap. And I don't think it's easy to teach that. I think it's just either there or it's not. And for me, it, it was it was there. And I've kind of always wanted to scratch that itch. And look, when you go through a formal, you know, I went to private school and then I would, you know, ended up going to Oxford and getting an engineering degree. And it's very much, you're on the rails the whole way through that. It's like, you know, here's how to study for your exams. Here's how to get a place at Oxford. Here's how to go and get a job at a bank or a consulting companies after after that. There was no folder in the careers library, either at school or uni, saying, here's how to be a startup founder. Because I, I didn't even know what that meant. I think now that's different. Uh, and it's great to see that that change. But back then, it was really hard. And I, I didn't really know the path that I was going to be able to take to get to this point. So you must be a prodigiously hard worker because you represented Oxford um, as a rower, which I'd love to learn more about. So I'm I'm the parent of two rowers, and when I watch them row, I want to cry. It's just so hard. They train so hard. So has that work ethic always been with you? Yes, I, I think it, it has. Yeah, you know. So I was a swimmer when I was a kid, and, and look, to be, I went to an all boys school. So swimming back in Scotland, I mean, the weather was crap, so you couldn't really do anything outdoors. So it was a great way to meet girls, which, you know, as a 14-year-old, and I was swimming sort of 13 to uh, 17. And look, it was a great time. I really, really enjoyed it. But I did learn some work ethic from that. And then I think that cascaded through to my my studies. I mean, my mum was a teacher. Uh, my dad was an accountant. You know, and I, I don't remember the motivation behind it. I just, I, I always felt that I wanted to do well. Maybe I was, you know, I've always been really competitive and I don't think I was comparing myself against others in the class, but maybe I was subconsciously so you know I wasn't I don't think the smartest but I did work pretty hard and I you know I got straight A's which got me into Oxford and then the work ethic there in the sport I mean maybe because I'd been a swimmer 
was good. Uh, but the other advantage I had, which you know sounds strange, is that I hadn't done any rowing before I went, and that meant I didn't have any preconceptions around how hard it should have been to get into the Oxford crew. So I just kind of kept pushing on the doors as they'd open, and just every time I pushed, it kind of opened, and I stepped through, and then I got to the next stage, and I did it again. So you know, after my second year, I you know, and literally, it's a funny story. Like the there was a notice put on the St. Peter's College sports notice board saying, if you want to you know, represent the university at the development squad, come to Effley Road Gym tomorrow. And literally, I had nothing better to do. If I had a better option instead of that, I wouldn't have gone. And that was, you know, as everyone's got these sliding door uh, moments in their lives, and, and that was one of them. So if I hadn't gone, nothing else would have happened, and I would not have gone on. And it was just from there, within a year, I was sitting in the, the stroke seat of the Oxford boat in the race. And without turning this from a startups podcast into a rowing podcast. I would talk about sport all day if you listen to my podcast. I always go down this rabbit hole. It's awesome. Well, I, I mean, they talk about it being the ultimate team sport and just the bond that you formed with the other seven plus the Cox, presumably there was a Cox boat. You know, what's that bond like? Uh, look, it's material. Uh, what's interesting with the Oxford-Cambridge race is that the delineation between winning and losing is just enormous. Like You train all the way just to get in that one boat and just to, to race in that one race. So if you win, which we did in my first year, it's everything. I mean, like you're on the record books. and So they are still remain many of my best friends, people I was in that boat with. The next year we lost. <laughs> and, you know, it's we are definitely not as tight a group within that crew as the as the winning crew you know and that second crew was was stacked I mean we had two Olympic gold medalists in the crew we had Matt Pinson who just won his third gold with uh, the British team and Bruce Robertson who just won a gold in the Canadian eight and we still lost and and to your point the reason we lost is because we didn't operate as a team we were slightly out of sync like the boat sort of fell apart in the middle of the crew just with those superstars like individually they were unbelievable they were just uh, machines but as a group we were not cohesive and Cambridge came in and their coach said, if you don't roll like this on day one, this is how you're going to roll. You will not make the crew. And they just, they were eight people who just turned it into 10 just by being together. So you use the term, you know, on the rails, you know, I can imagine if you've been a straight A student, you've gone to Oxford, which is sort of in the UK and maybe in Australia, a dream come true. You've won the Oxford Cambridge race. You're the quintessential sort of archetype for establishment forever and ever. How did you then step off that track and do something completely different? Good question. And again, I don't really have a good answer to any of this. And in hindsight, when you put it like that, it's like, yeah, that does sound pretty good. And, you know, you should be a shoe in for any of the consulting companies or banks in, in London. I didn't really pursue that path though. I'd been sponsored, you know, I'm using quote marks and sponsored. I mean, they basically gave you a bit of beer money while you were at uni from a Glasgow engineering company called uh, the Weir Group. And I worked at Weir Pumps as an engineering graduate. So I had uh, this hazy notion in my head that I was going to go back and reform or make British engineering better, better than ever. So I thought, I'll just go back to Glasgow and I'll work in the, the factory for a few years. And before I know it, I'll be running the joint. And again, I can't remember what was quite going through my head, but I went back to, instead of going to London and taking a job in a bank, as most other people with that pedigree did, I went to Glasgow and took a shitty job on the shop floor of Weir Pumps. Look, it was a great learning experience. 
First of all, they, they thought I was English because they all sounded like Rab C. Nesbitt or Tiger in the early days of the show. And they're like, ah, what you did, you agree? And they just drank liters of iron brew and just had the worst diet, no teeth. And it was just the classically Glasgow. And I loved it. And, you know, I remember one of them, you know, I, I was on his machine trying to work out how to get this piece of metal turned into the other piece of metal we needed. And, you know, at one point he knew I didn't know what I was talking about. He said, if you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, get off my machine. And I thought, you know what? He's absolutely right. Because you kind of come out with that background. It's like, I can do anything and I know all this stuff. But if you don't know what is relevant at that moment, none of that matters. So that was a great lesson for me. And I kind of took that away, but I couldn't stick it. I mean, it's uh, it was going to be years and years of, of that. And I eventually moved on and got out. And do you think that gives you an appreciation for mastery, you know, and respect for people who've honed their craft? Yes. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think there's loads of different ways of, of looking at it. I mean, one is just, you know, I, I loved growing up in Glasgow. I mean, Glasgow's a, uh, it's a tough town. You know, I grew up in the, here in the 80s. So if anyone's read Shuggy Bain, I mean, it, I grew up in the right side of the tracks, not in uh, Sight Hill as that was, I mean, they, it was a fictitious town in Shuggy Bain, but it was a depressing place and it was just full of ill health and alcoholism and just, it was hard. But it is also, and there's some amazing people, you know, the real people, real people in real jobs, like people who've been, people at Weir Pumps used to get regularly an award of a 50 year anniversary like if you'd done 50 years in the factory you got a gold watch and i remember some of the ceremonies for that it's like 50 years doing pretty much the same job in the same place and that's how most of the world works so look, i really uh, respect i wouldn't want to do it i'm glad that i didn't but i'm also glad that i got to hang out with some of these people because they are they were amazing people and just hanging out with them was a was a privilege so then sydney feels like so far away from glasgow like how did you make that happen or did was it something that you actively manufactured or did it just sort of evolve? Uh, no, I went to a friend's wedding in Glasgow in January 96. So I was 25 years old and I met Andrea. Uh, so this the friend had been a lawyer. You know, she was from Glasgow. We were pretty good buddies. I mean, we just kind of, we weren't uh, in a relationship or anything, but we just used to go to the cinema and the theatre and stuff together. And she ended up working with Andrea uh, for a law company in London. And she invited us both to her wedding. It was a massive wedding in Glasgow University, Butte Hall, beautiful old place. Andrea almost didn't come because she thought she'd never been to Glasgow. And she was this Aussie that only heard bad things. And she thought she was going to get stabbed and headbutted. And she ended up meeting me. uh, So I don't know what was worse. She sat us beside each other. You know, Andrea's almost 12 years older than me. So I was 25. She was 37. She had a proper job. I think she was working at Lehman Brothers in, in London. And she just came in, she, you know, she had a glass of champagne in her hand and she was just bubbly and effervescent. And it was just kind of this, like, who is this remarkable woman? Well, and I was just, you know, I was a typical 25-year-old. I thought, oh, maybe I'll get to score a bridesmaid and get drunk with my mates. Yeah, and we just ended up chatting for 24 hours straight. And then, yeah, we ended up in a long-distance relationship. And she gave up her job, came to Scotland after that. And that was what got me on the Sydney path, to be honest. It was Andrea, nothing else. If it wasn't for that, I've got to be absolutely honest with myself I would almost certainly still be in Scotland. I mean my sense is you've got a great life in Sydney and you and Andrea are a formidable team like if you're sort of trying to design the ideal couple to you know be involved in startups it's you guys you know you've got engineering economics law management experience but how does it feel to sort of make that decision to leave the home that you know behind and sort of reconcile with yourself that you probably never live there again? Well, I think we knew, or I knew in my heart that it was going to be better. I'd never been to Australia, really had much interest in it until I met Andrea. 
And then when she brought me here before we got married, I was blown away with the place. It was just, it was so beautiful. The weather was so good. The people were so nice. I mean, I remember just first time in Sydney Harbour. I'm like, you know, does this place exist? What would it be like to live here? And I kind of had this thing in my head. It's like, this is the opposite of Glasgow. I mean, I love Glasgow, and it's, but it's not beautiful in the way that Sydney Harbour is. So I guess I always had that planted there. And again, it was a difficult decision. I remember telling, you know, we just had our first son, Felix, and we decided to come. And it's that was, and I didn't think much of it before we'd started telling them. And I'm like, oh, we're going to move to Australia. And you could see they're like, oh, shit. Because they kind of got it before we did, or I think I did, because you know, I was kind of, can be a little naive and not think through things. I'm much more gung-ho. And you talk about the uh, dynamic between me and Andrea, just it's it's less about the skill set that we have than the people we are. I'm gung-ho and she's cautious and the right answer's in the middle. You know, and there's plenty of other examples like that where our personality traits, you know, she's emotional, I'm not, and the right answer's in the middle. You know, and that's been good for me and hopefully vice versa. I mean, it seems like both of you gravitated towards startups, either as operators yourselves or investors. Was that something that you'd looked at from afar and focused on or again was that an organic opportunistic evolving in your lives it wasn't deliberate you know I, i've been running innovation bay for pretty much ever since i got here not running about i co-founded it with uh with Faden Stow. you know from about 2011 onwards we were running angel dinners you know andrea was just coming out the sort of fog of 10 years of motherhood and trying to get back into the, the workforce you know and i was very really keen to support her so i was bringing her along to the pitch events and then there was one we came to in 2014 and we saw Store Reduce. So Vanessa Wilson was running Store Reduce. I'd just started working at AWS. And look, Store Reduce was data deduplication in a cloud environment. So it was fairly niche, but there was something about them and the market they were in that was just great. And Andrew and I said, this is one we have to work out how to invest in. So it was a little bit accidental. It's just, we'd been going to these events and just seeing that, that, you know, there was some great startup talent and great investors in the room, but trying to get the investors to put their hand in the pocket, lead a deal and just commit was really, really hard. So we had a thesis that maybe if we started leading these and we decided to do the deal, we phoned Deborah at uh, Gilbert and Tobin and said, Deborah, we don't know what we're doing. Can you help us? And she helped structure it for us, which was great. And that was the first deal we did. So, you know, I sent an email and phoned a few mates. And over the weekend, we, you know, we put in, I think, 20K and we leveraged it up to 200. And we invested, you know, the pump sign to that. Fast forward three and a half years, they sold to Pure Storage and we returned 10 times cash to all those investors, which was amazing. You know, so a great outcome. We kind of thought we were geniuses and then it turned out we weren't. Some of the other deals we did after that weren't quite as good. But, you know, you have to start somewhere and you have to learn. But yes, yeah, so I'd say it was more accidental than deliberate. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm so glad you raised that in terms of good get for your first deal, but sometimes bad outcomes are even better experiences. So do you want to talk about, you know, how as an investor over this time, you've been able to unpick what's luck, what's good process, what's, you know, the, the sort of ingredients to feel confident that you're increasing your probability of success? The more due diligence you can do, the better. I mean, that's the, probably the first thing. So if you go deep on trying to establish, and sometimes you can't go too far because you just don't have time. And sometimes, especially at the early stage, it, it can be as much art as it is science. You know, the most important thing we look for is the, the traits of the founder. And again, if the founder has been previously successful as a startup founder, that is the number one trait you look for. But that's also the trait that makes them the most attractive to everyone else. 
So as a investor trying to find, you know, the, the gold and the dirt, it's like, well, what are you looking for? What we want to see is intelligence, curiosity, capability of learning and adapting. You know, that can sometimes happen over time. You know, so when we think back about the best investments we've made, a lot of them have been in people we've known for a long time. You know, that's one of the benefits of being in this ecosystem for as long as we have. It's, you know, I'll hear a name and sometimes look it up in my email. Gmail goes back 12 years now. So, you know, you do a search in that and immediately you can see when you first came across them. So they might pitch to Innovation Bay back in 2014 and you maybe remember them. You can get in touch with someone. So it's just that pattern matching. There's no easy answer to this, but the more pattern matching you have, the more you can establish whether or not you know, where the risk could be. But the number one thing like, where we've made mistakes is backing founders who have been incapable of learning or adapting, you know, so that they're on their own rails and you just cannot get them off that rail. And if the path they're going down is not the right one and they can't change, you're going to burn your money. And do you limit your universe at all? Or, or you just say, look, doesn't matter what you're doing. If you've got a high growth business and you're the right sort of founder, we'll back any idea. Uh, no, well... Yes and no. Uh, I mean, we don't love consumer businesses. And that's not that consumer businesses are bad. It's just we don't have any expertise in it, uh, point one. And point two, they tend to need a lot of money to get them to critical mass. You know, we're not a big fund. So that's not really what we want to do. We probably wouldn't either do really deep medical tech either. You know, so drug discovery and stuff like that, that's completely out of our domain. But pretty much everything else in between, if it's technology, if it's scalable, if there's a great founder behind it, if it's got a massive global market, sure, we'll definitely look at it. And we've done everything from quantum computing, fintech, a lot of edtech. Portfolio is very broad and it's uh, in its reach. We often say to startup founders, you know, be careful who you have on your cap table, you know, take checks from people who are going to be, you know, really good investors because they're with you for a long time. What's your advice to founders in terms of finding investors that are the right match for you? Ask other founders. I mean, that's the number one thing, especially successful founders. They are likely to have got scars in the backs that other ones don't. You know, again, let's maybe brings back or bring in the community aspect to, to what we do and maybe why we're, we've got the track record and reputation that we do. We are good, I think, at building community and encouraging startups to, to hang out with each other. You know, so with Innovation Bay, we've launched all these member tiers. So Summit was the first one, and that is for late stage founders. You know, so if you're worth $20 million or more, you can join that group. And there's 45 members in there now. And the magic in it is not us. The magic is the members. So that peer-to-peer, you bring great people in a room together, great things happen. All we're really doing is facilitating that in a sort of using quote marks and forced manner. And it just works. The WhatsApp group is alive with questions about legals and sales strategy and expansion and fundraising. So that feels really good that we are able to support that community and that is you know beneficial to us and I think the startups themselves as well. I'm interested in the role of value and cultures in building communities but also building organizations. What's your view of the investment you need to make in in articulating your values and and building a strong culture? Yeah look I haven't talked about Amazon in my journey yet but you know my four years there you know I joined Amazon and or AWS in 2014 Amazon is a remarkable organization and it is the glue that holds Amazon together is its culture. If you Google Amazon leadership principles, there's 14 of them. And I kind of thought it was going to be, you know, stick it in the wall and don't ever think about it bullshit. But 
everything that the cadence of just about everything within that organization was around those those cultural values and it started with the customer obsession i mean that was number one on the list and you kept coming back to it you know you'd almost start meetings by like you know there's a story in the early days of Amazon that in every meeting you were meant to have an empty chair which was meant to represent the customer pretend the customer's in that chair and they're listening to this you know and it's just that cadence and that everyone in the organization knew the 14 leadership principles and could re- almost recite them and it mattered and then sometimes you know the best startups and again this is the benefit of having done as many podcasts as I had and met as many incredible founders sometimes it doesn't matter what the culture is as long as it's super clear to everyone and super enforced, like you have to just make sure that the cadence of the organization rotates around that, you know, and sure, spend plenty of time working out what those cultural values are. And the, the earlier you can do that, the better, but, you know, then you put them on the wall and then you drive the organization towards them. And then, you know, your strategy planning and everything else will come off that, but the culture is right at the top. I think it was Drucker that said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it's true. And what about you personally in terms of your personal values and and then that finding expression in innovation by angelics uh i mean we talk about it i mean andrea is the the ceo and figurehead of 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 gelix and you know we have our own cultural norms within that you know the number one for for andrea hopefully she'll say the same thing it's it's integrity integrity honesty and doing what you say you're going to do and doing it with conviction and with courage and with respect uh, you know, and that's for your staff, for your investors, for your investees. You know, Innovation Bay, like we are about community, you know, and we want to support our our staff and, and anyone who's in that community. You know, we've got diversity on the list. From a personal point of view, I mean, the way I, I tend to think about things is that I want to do a really good job, but I also want to really enjoy doing it and have a lot of fun on the way. So, you know, if you can combine that profi- like extreme professionalism with a bunch of good fun, you know, that seems to me like to be the, the best, you know, it seems obvious, but it's, if you can come up, if you can work that and do it right, it's just a great recipe. So that fun bit is really interesting because being a startup founder is really, really hard and presumably supporting founders in the role that you have, you know, sometimes is also really, really hard. How do you sort of maintain that sort of equilibrium without sometimes feeling like there's just more need than you can ever supply to what you know people are asking you for i mean ultimately people should be driven by enjoying themselves i mean yes the startup journey is brutal it's definitely an emotional roller coaster sometimes in the same day sometimes in the same hour i mean the highs and lows that you get by being a startup founder are just extreme and sometimes as an investor i mean you can give them financial support you can give them commercial support technical support but often the best thing you can do is just give them emotional support which is like this is really hard. I get it. You know, you're falling out with your co-founder, you're getting sued, you know, whatever it might be, that stuff is not fun. But as part of the overall journey, those points during that journey, they're terrible. I mean, but you know, you land the contract, you get that uh, investment, you land the the candidate, you know, your dream candidate for uh, the role that you're hiring for. I mean, that stuff is so special. And I think hopefully on most startups journey, you get more of those fun points than you do the bad points. The bad points make the good points all the much better. That's maybe one way of thinking of it. Any sort of favorite companies that illustrate the sort of high points and and the low points and the difficulties? Oh God, without breaching trust. I mean, everyone goes through it. I mean, like, like 
you know, I can probably say this. I mean, look, it was tough for us with, with Gelix. I mean, a few years ago, like we were a startup as well. I mean, like, yes, we're an investor and a lot of people just don't think of investment companies as startups, but Andrew and I were personally putting our own money in to keep the place running, you know, because we didn't have enough uh, income from the deals we were doing and we we're running out of money. You know, this is probably three, I can't remember exactly, three or four years ago, you know, so now I'd left Amazon, so I didn't have the corporate income anymore. You know, I think our CFO said to us, you know, if, if this keeps going like this, you're going to have to think about winding it up. And I don't know, we kind of, we hung up from that call and Andrew and I both looked at each other and said, we're not going to do that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> there is no question. And again, this is maybe just the, the traits of startup founders. It's like, no, there is no plan B. You know, if the parachute doesn't open, we're going to hit the ground and, you know, fucking let's, uh, let's just get on with it. And of course, it's, it's every startup has a story similar to this. It's always darkest before the dawn. You know, and you fast forward to where we are now. I mean, we've closed a $22 million round and we've got more to come. We've done 27 investments. You know, every deal we put out now is well oversubscribed and we've, we're profitable. We've got great stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, we've turned the corner. We jumped the shark, whatever you call it. You know, and, and there's other examples. I just put a podcast out with Steve Finale, who's the Drive Yellow guy. Amazing story, amazing guy. And he was last mile delivery. So it's kind of an outsourced delivery service. So think of delivery drivers, but you know, if you're a restaurant or a retail premises, you can uh, use them. He was struggling just as a game of volume and he didn't have the volume and he didn't have the investment. And I think it was January, February, 2020. Uh, his mom had just died, which was awful. So he was feeling it with that. And the business was on its knees and he was you know, ready to pack it in. And then COVID came within two months of that. He was on a tear. Uh, everyone needed last mile delivery. And you listen to it now, he's raising $20 million fund. He's, you know, and he's a great example of that. You know, the low point of that journey was was awful. I mean, it, it, it didn't get to the point of, of killing it. And, and a lot of companies do die in this process, but he got through. And again, it's, the, it's always darkest before the dawn. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I don't know. I came up with a stupid one, but I don't tend to agree with it. It's, uh, you know, life's too short to drink cheap wine. But as a Scotsman, I tend to, you know, my budget in a wine bottle used to be $10, but I spend a little bit more now. From a business sense, I'd probably come back to the cultural piece. You know, if you get the culture right in an organization, that is the glue that's going to hold it together and let it grow uh, without falling apart. Because that ultimately, you know, as companies scale, it's really hard to keep the wheels on and, and as you're growing, it's uh, culture is the thing that's going to do it though. I love the relationship that you and Andrea seem to have and it seems like you're a real champion for each other. Besides Andrea, is there other people who have been real role models or, or mentors or people who've really shaped, you know, who you are? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot, you know, who would you put on that list? I'm fortunate to have some some really good friends that go all the way back to Scotland and, and Oxford. Unfortunately, none of them live here. You know, one lives in New York, one lives in Chicago, you know, so I'll see them once a year. But when the shit's hitting the fan, it's, it's good to be able to have a group like that to lean on. You know, I, I've been in YPO, which is a sort of CEO club for eight years now. And, you know, and, and we've modeled some of the stuff we're doing with our summit community off that. And, you know, within YPO, I've been in a forum, which is, you know, roughly eight people, you know, and it's no magic sauce to this. And there's plenty of other organizations do it. A lot of the CEO clubs do it, you know, so it's eight to 10 people. You get together once a month and you share your challenges. And it's not just about your business. It's about your personal life, you know, how you're feeling, how your uh, mental health and physical health is and how your relationships are. 
because it's like a three-legged bar stool, you know, so it's your business, your relationships, and your personal life. And if one of them's out of whack, like, you know, if your bar stool leg is too short, you're going to fall over. So you have to keep them all in balance. And that's been a remarkably amazing uh, resource because it's kind of like your own personal board. And they, they end up being friends, but in a sort of different kind of way. You know, they're, they're not friends that you, you end up going to the pub with every Saturday or, or doing activities with. But when you're together with them, you completely trust in them. You can be can be vulnerable. You can tell them anything. And you know it's going to be respected. It's going to be confidential. I'd say my YPO forum, and hopefully, you know, if you interview some of our summit members in a few years, they'll say, yeah, my summit forum. And you're seeing it like the, the groups that have been together three years, it's it becomes incredibly sticky and valuable for them. You've just mentioned about four things there that you're involved in, in a really meaningful way, without even talking about your own investing. You've got a lot going on. How do you, what are your, some of your tips for, for being productive? I don't know what the tips are. I don't think I do it particularly well. I mean, I actually almost declared email bankruptcy two weeks ago. I put an out of office on saying, you know, I've got 800 emails that I can't get to. And if you're one of them, I'm sorry, but I just haven't read it. You know, it's just, it was wall to wall Zoom meetings and other meetings. Um, you know, so look, it's a first world problem. I mean, you know, because basically I spend 50% of my time on Innovation Bay and 50% in Gelix. And that's, that's a challenge, you know, because both of them are essentially full-time roles and they could be I mean the way I try and rationalize it is it's kind of got the same kind of focus it's all about startups and helping others and one plus one equals four you know so the reality is both sides benefit from my association with the other but it is it's really difficult you know maybe it's just from spending the majority of my longish career in fairly high stress demanding complicated environments so you kind of know instinctively what you should be doing and whether that thing that you're maybe going to do is important. But without, you know, if you tried to write it down and rationalize it and build a formula around it, you probably couldn't. Look, it is really hard. That is the, the biggest challenge I've got. It's just how to juggle that time. You talked about the sort of balancing items of staying upright. Where's sort of physical health in all of that? Because it strikes me that you're someone who prioritizes, you know, being fit and strong. Uh, yeah, look, probably to too great a, a degree. You know, I've been a aerobic sport junkie all my life and you know you, you touched on how hard rowing was I mean it was it was it was a really really tough so like multiple times a week I was putting my body and heart and everything under a lot of stress and then as I got older you know you'd you'd go out and you'd have a big night having a quite a lot of drink and then you'd wake up the next morning you'd go and train hard and none of that was good for it you know I ended up probably 10 years ago I started getting a little bit of atrial fibrillation only when exercising and only when exercising under load and I was just getting progressively a little worse you know so I ended up I actually had heart surgery to fix that so I had a, a ablation on it which has completely fixed it you know there is such thing as too much sport I mean I think I just pushed it too hard for too many years and it's relatively common I think in you know lifetime endurance athletes your heart ends up getting bigger which is not really designed to do and then the electrics get a bit wonky and they had to go in and fix it so yeah, no, I have been faced with now, you know, my throttle is at nine or nine and a half, whereas it used to be at 11. I was on a cycling team for a few years, a few years back. And, you know, I still love riding my bike and riding it hard, but I probably shouldn't be doing it as much. And, I, and maybe it's the, it's another lesson here. The founder in me doesn't like cycling so much anymore because I'm getting worse. So I'm managing decline and I, that gives me the shits. One of the best things about Strava is it shows you how good you used to be and how good you'll never be again 
Uh, so I've got to find something that I'm crappy at. So I'm playing in a, a squash team at the local club now, and I'm definitely getting better there, but I've got a long way to go. Yeah, you need to take up archery or something. You yeah, could, you yeah, yeah. Got... yeah, I love computer games, and that's probably not so bad in the heart. One of the things I love about your podcast is when you talk about, you know, favourite books, podcasts, and there's lots that I've written down over the, the, the times I've listened to you. Compiling all of what you know from all of your guests, what are, what's your sort of short list of go-to things that you love? The number of commonality in the the book, I mean, you know, if I think back over the 120 episodes, probably the number one thing that, that came out was uh, Navier, I, God, I can't remember his surname, the guy that wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus. Well, those are exceptional books. And if you're interested in just humanity and how we came about, it's it's just incredible. You know, so, and I, you know, I've read them and they've been great. Look, I probably don't read enough. I mean, I try and get through maybe a book a month. You know, my Innovation Bay team bought, you know, I turned 50 last month and, or two months ago and they all bought me books. So I've got a bunch that I'm still going to get through because it's physical books too, like kind of unusual. Normally I just read it on my iPhone. My go-to during the week when I take the dog for a walker, you've got your iPod in, is just the Economist audio edition on two times speed. And if you can get through that in a week, it's just, it's fascinating. And the quality of the writing is brilliant. And I just learned so much from that. And they did this great uh, in-depth look at DeFi, decentralized finance a few months ago. And, you know, I'd love to get deeper in that. You know, I think that's also uh, wearing my VC hat. I mean, it's a massive new trend that's coming. You know, I, I was always a little bit skeptical of Bitcoin in particular and cryptocurrency, but it's the, the underlying technology, like the blockchain and the way it's going to affect money and finance and, the, you know, central banks and the future of all that is just fascinating. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is the amazing thing about being involved in startups is you can never know enough. You know, you, you always got the opportunity to to learn more. And that brings me to you've got two kids. Your kids presumably look at you and Andrea and you're incredibly entrepreneurial. Do you think that they're sort of picking that up and absorbing it? Is, is that something that you'd like them to internalise? I don't know. I suspect neither of them will listen to the podcast or anything else that we're doing. I mean, our youngest one is just finishing his HSC. And doing HSC in COVID was a disaster zone. It's just, it was awful for him. He wasn't motivated. And we ended up just sort of nagging him and wishing that he would do more work and just be a bit more motivated. Your kids definitely pick up traits. And I think it's a parent's job to worry that, you know, you've not done a good enough job and they're not going to end up all right. But I think if you smother them in, in support and love from the get-go, then they will end up being okay. You know, and I think Jasper has just been, you know, he's 19 going on 15 and he's been like that for a little while. And I think, you know, we're packing him off to Canada to be a lift operator at a resort over there. So um, hopefully that uh, that burst of independence will get him up that learning curve. You know, Felix, who's 21, he's doing a computer science degree. You know, he's probably going to get into programming and, you know, we're going to be spending a few months together. I mean, he's we haven't seen him for a few months. He, he went to Jindabyne to go skiing in early June. And then lockdown happened and he just didn't leave. So he's been down there ever since. And yeah, we're going to be in the US with him and his new girlfriend for a few months. So, you know, I'm expecting that we'll have a few discussions. He's, he's pretty curious. And I do want to start talking to him about some of the stuff that's coming and some of these trends uh, and what he maybe should get focused on. Last question. What are you really excited and optimistic about? The startup ecosystem overall is is on a tear. I mean, it's there's a lot of money out there. There's so much interest. There's so much talent coming in. You know, so both with Gelix in particular, I mean, because that, that's kind of our long-term wealth 
creation and also impact. I mean, the impact that I think we're going to have on the world by backing some of these exceptional companies is just it's so exciting. And, you know, as I said before, we have kind of jumped that shark or whatever that expression is. You know, so we're on the other side and we're on, on a tear and it's, it's feeling really good and really exciting. We're hiring an investment associate and a community manager right now. Uh, and again, with Innovation Bay, I mean, we've, like, Faden is a great co-founder. I really enjoy working with him. Uh, we don't see much of each other. He's he's in Hobart, so I haven't seen him for, for ages. But that is super exciting. I mean, building out a proper, impactful membership organization that we know delivers value all the way from seed stage founders. We've got, we've just started that group called Canopy. And then we've got uh, Summit, which is our late stage founders. We've got Horizon, which is for angel investors, and then Aurora, which is for the VCs. And all of them are full of remarkable people wanting to to do good things and collaborate and hang out with each other. And it's just, it's so much fun. You know, it is a business, you know, we want to drive profit in the business, but, you know, profit is a great driver of innovation. Uh, so we're pretty proud of that. So I'm super excited. I mean, I loved my time in the big corporate world. Uh, but ultimately, you're always a tiny wheel and a gigantic cog. And that wasn't me. I just needed to get back to my roots. And, you know, I feel now that I'm old enough and experienced enough that I kind of know what good looks like and what I'm not prepared to accept. And, you know, what I'm doing with uh, with Innovation Bay and Gelix feels like my life's work. And, and it's great to do it with people that you know I love. So, you know, Andrea and Faden are awesome people. My sense is that all of those things are successful because of the sort of generosity that sits at the heart of it. So thank you so much for that and for you know sharing your time and insights today. Pay it forward. That's what I always used to say. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.